You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. The OPP is brought to you by Natural Stacks, makers of 100% natural and open source supplements designed to help you live optimal. For more information on how to build optimal mental and physical performance into your life, go to naturalstacks.com. Oh, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Sean McCormick. I am a life coach, a performance coach. I'm releasing an online course for personal development in late February. So if you listen to this now, you can go to seanmccormick.com and you can uh, check out what I do. I help people improve quickly. I help people get to their, uh, to their goals faster with biohacking techniques, classic personal development approaches, professional development leverage techniques as well as spiritual development, which is something that I'm super passionate about. But enough about me. On today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Kristen Race. And Dr. Kristen Race is a mindfulness expert. She's worked with companies all over the world in how to employ both formal and informal mindfulness practices. And uh, the way that she approaches, you know, her background is in neuroscience, so she has this really great context for how to uh, how to um, think about stress, how to think about resilience, and what the effects are uh, neurochemically. Really fascinating uh, conversation that we had. We talk about how to manage stress, specifically some tools that you can use right away. We talk about the importance of building resilience. We talk about systemic stress increasing with every generation. Why is it that every generation is increasingly more stressed out? I think you probably already know the answer to that. We also talk about the importance of exposing your kids to challenges and failures. You know, this uh, helicopter parenting or uh, bulldozer parenting is just, uh, it's not working anymore. So how can you set up your children to be successful? She has two kids. I have two kids. I'm sure that a few of you have kids too. And um, hopefully this is uh, useful to you because it's useful to me because I've already started to do some of the things that we outline in this episode of the podcast with my family at night around the dinner table. We talk about uh, the difference between formal and informal mindfulness. We talk about techniques for dealing with stress and elevate elevated states with a process she calls PBR, which is, of course, not Pabst Blue Ribbon. This has nothing to do with beer. Uh, we also talk about the neurochemical process of increasing resiliency. What happens when we can become more resilient? What's going on in the brain? Apparently, it's the left frontal prefrontal cortex. We talk about how little inputs and stresses tell our brains that our lives are in danger. How saying, I'm excited, is really effective in processing stress and turning fear and stress into something that is more accessible. Um, we talk about three good things. This is the technique that I've been using around the dinner table at night now with my family to really sort of highlight highlight the goodness in the day and to stay in a positive state of mind. Um, hopefully you eat dinner with your family around the table at night and uh, this is a really cool way to sort of connect and see what's going on in people's lives. And also, of course, we talk about the power of gratitude because the power of gratitude is is now clinically proven, scientifically proven, and it is massively, massively beneficial for your mental well-being. As always, thank you for listening to this podcast. Thank you for coming back time and time again. Thank you so much for um, appreciating this content. 
you know, one way that you can show you the appreciation for all of this amazing free content is by going to iTunes and giving us a review. If you hate it, if you listen every week and hate it, you're sort of an interesting person. If you listen every week and you love it, please go in and give us a five-star review on iTunes. We would really appreciate that. It really helps the podcast grow. You know, last week I mentioned that this the, the podcast may be coming to an end soon. I'm working through that stuff, uh, working through what what this is going to look like in the future. Um, there's a possibility, there's a strong possibility that, that these may be the last couple of episodes that we do. Um, if you don't want that to happen and you want me to keep doing this, I would love to hear from you. Send me an email at sean at seanmccormick.com, S-E-A-N mccormick.com, or sean at naturalstacks.com and tell me what you think. If you want these to keep going, let me know. Um, there's a ton of time that goes into doing these podcasts. Um, as, as you well know, we have not had sponsors because we have tried to keep it as pure as possible. And for a you know three-plus-year podcast, this is uh, sort of a unique situation to not have sponsors. So um, that's just the peek behind the curtain, I guess. Um, so I'd love to hear from you. If, you. if you dig this stuff and you want to keep it going, you want me to keep doing this podcast, uh, let me know. Hit me up. Follow me on Instagram at real Sean McCormick, and please, please enjoy this episode. This, uh, you know, we talk about how gratitude and personal development and mental training can be really corny because it can be really, really corny, kumbaya, Pollyanna stuff. But uh, it's good for for your mental health. It's good for your mental well being to have some of these tools that are really effective at helping you be the best person you can possibly be. Thank you so much for listening to me drone on for five minutes. And without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Kristen Race. You're listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast, and I'm your host, Sean McCormick. It's the OPP. I'm a performance coach, a wellness entrepreneur, a blogger, a speaker, a biohacker, and it's my privilege to bring to you the leading experts in the field of performance. So let's dig right in. And we're here with Dr. Kristen Race, the author and founder of Mindful Life and head of mindfulness for Sylvasa Beauty and also an author. And also I watched a riveting tech TEDx talk that you did just recently, which I think is such an important thing. But before we get into that, welcome to the Optimal Performance Podcast. Thank you, Sean. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So a couple of things that really kind of stand out to me is this concept of stress, um, generations of more and more stressed out people. And and so I'd love to hear your thoughts on the importance of having tools for stress management in this crazy mixed up world we live in. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, when we get stressed and we have a lot of stressors in our lives, the, the first thing we want to do is either manage those, run away from those, contain those stressors, eliminate those stressors. And I certainly was in that, that, you know, I fell into that bucket for quite a while. And the reality is, as our lives change and technology changes and we get busier and have more going on, we can't control all of those stressors in our lives. Um, we can't control the stressors in our kids' lives. But what we can do is build resilience 
to stress. And it's really about turning inside and integrating some pretty simple practices, routines, rituals that can create resilience from the inside. So we're not impacted uh, by all of the, the stressors that we have coming at us in our modern lives. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's not going to slow down. It's not going to stop. Uh, you know, um, there's going to be new TikToks. There's going to be <laughs> new new things to watch, um, ways to be distracted. Um, can you can you define resilience and resiliency for for me and for the listeners? Because I think that we sort of we kind of have a sense of what that means. Uh, but but it would be really great to just like really clearly define that. Sure. So when I think of resilience or resiliency, I think of the ability to bounce back from adversity. So we are going to face adversity in our lives, um, whether that comes in a major life trauma or, uh, you know, somebody cutting off you, cutting you off in traffic and and making you late for a meeting. Those are all many forms of um, of adversity. And it's our ability to to take in that adversity and to um, to not let it impact us in negative ways, to be able to bounce back, to be able to grow from those experiences. And as we become more resilient, we're less impacted by the things and the challenges that get in our way. Uh, we're able to perform at a higher level. We feel happier. We feel less stressed. There's so many great things that come with it. Uh, and it's something that can be developed, which is really interesting and I think can be developed in people from age two to 92. It doesn't stop at a certain age or start at a certain age. And it's a it's a skill, you know, I, I guess I would call resiliency, I think it's a skill, it's also a trait that um, is so critical in in our busy lives today. I've heard it described by – we did an episode with a therapist who does um, EMDR mm. and, and – which I'm just totally fascinated with by. I did one session. It was, it was really, really interesting. And the way that she described it was that we're, we're sort of given a bucket of resiliency when we're born. And that bucket is filled to the top with resiliency, that the, the ability to bounce back from adversity. And um, – Maybe if our mothers were smokers or drinkers, um, then maybe our maybe we have a little bit less when we're born. If we are exposed to trauma in childhood, maybe there's a little bit less. Well, certainly there's less. You know, as we if we're if we're bullied and malnourished and um, and stressed out as children, sort of growing into adulthood, that that bucket just 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 sort of drains and drains and drains. And and the example that she gave me was, you know, two people could go off to war. Be fighting side by side, had the exact exact or the same experiences externally, um, which I would consider adversity. But if if person A grew up in a home that was highly stressful, um, traumatic, abusive, then they're going to have less of an ability to bounce back from that trauma of being in a you know being in a in a, in a worse scenario than person b who had <clears throat> whose mother did not drink or smoke they got lots of great food and love and care and nourishment and so there's this discrepancy between 
um, the person who who doesn't have any resiliency left comes back, has a really hard time coping and integrating back into society, and person B who who comes back and finds a way to live um, a fulfilling life. I really like that. Does that vibe with your sort of awareness and the way that you think about resiliency? It does. It absolutely does. Uh, I think there's a lot of things we can do in our environment and in our upbringing to nurture that resiliency. The one thing that I would say, uh, and I find this a lot in my work with kids and my work with families, is there there is a good thing about stress. There is good stress. And I think our tendency as parents today is to put a bubble around our kids and not let them experience any adversity. So don't let them get cut from the team. Don't let them have the difficult teacher. Uh, you know, don't let them eat something, you know, that they or you know, put something in their lunch that they might not want to eat. All of these things, right? We try and put a, a bubble around them. We're very protective. And and I find in those cases, those kids have a much more difficult time as adversity comes at them later in life because they haven't learned how to bounce back. They haven't had those small mistakes, those challenges when they were young, those opportunities to learn that they can fail and they can recover. Mm. And I think that's super important. I totally get what um, what the person you were talking about was saying. And I think in general, that's very true. But I do think we have to be careful that for me, so much growth occurs outside our comfort zone. So it's in those opportunities when we stretch and we push and we put ourselves in risky situations where we may not be successful. And oftentimes that's where we grow. And eventually become more resilient. So when I think I think about things like, you know, running a half marathon or a marathon or I did a really difficult mountain bike race for me and and it was putting myself in those difficult situations um, where I might I might not make it, I might not finish, I might be embarrassed because I might come in dead last, but putting myself through that training, through kind of the, what I would call good stress of that, I felt like I came out much more resilient the other side. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally does. Yeah. I'm, I'm reminded of, of the author and I don't remember the name, but, um, um, the concept of like free range kids. I, I have kids uh, yes. as well. So like, like it, Exactly. It's your kid should be able to go ride their bikes without without wearing a t-shirt that says I'm free range. Like the the it's it's a different it's a different world we live in, but this this author um you know sends his 8-year-old um to go get bagels in New York City uh every Sunday morning. So the 8-year-old sure. jumps on the subway and goes get and gets bagels and comes back and it's like, you know, that that is a that is an excellent example of of letting the kid go and fail and and re- cutting the strings a little bit, you know if it that giving them an opportunity to think for themselves and to learn from themselves they're going to be exposed to all sorts of things, um and and how important is that to actually like actively build that resistance rather than bulldozing the path ahead so that they're so protected you know paying bribing college admissions people so that you can you know so yeah. your kid can get into USC like. For me, right. it's 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 scary because like that 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 
that indicates such a level of distrust of your own children's ability, um, and which is which is which is scary. So I, I totally I totally agree with you. There, we have to give our kids opportunities to fail and to desensitize from failure. How, how old are your kids? Mine are sixteen. I have a sixteen-year-old daughter and a fourteen-year-old son. So they're very independent right now. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And they and they have been pretty independent for quite a while. But it is, uh, you know, giving them, I think what you said, the the trust that they can succeed. And when we don't allow them those opportunities, they feel like the reason we're not allowing them the opportunity is because they can't handle it. So by allowing them the opportunity to say, hey, yeah, you can go to the walk downtown, get on the bus, go to the grocery store and come back sends the message that you can do this. Of course you can. Yeah. And, and that's huge. Yeah. So as an expert in, in mindfulness, um, I'd love to hear sort of your story. And we we have a tendency to just jump into these conversations with two feet. And, and, uh, Mm -hmm. and and so, uh, but I, I want to back up a little bit. Can you tell me a little bit about your, um, your path to mindfulness and and how you how you show up in the world as a as a as a teacher as a leader uh, in mindfulness. Sure, I, I will try to do this and not make this a four hour show. <laughs> <laughs> but so it started. I would say about I guess it was fifteen years ago in two thousand five. I was. Uh, I was working on my dissertation. So I was trying to finish my dissertation. I was pregnant. I had an 18 month old child. I was working full time. I decided to completely remodel my house. And I was in this mindset that I could do everything perfectly and I could do it all myself. I didn't need help from anybody. Just go, go, go. And I was at a massive push to try and finish my dissertation before my second child was born. The irony is that my dissertation, I was studying the neuroscience of stress. (laughs) (laughs) So fast forward a little bit after I finished my dissertation, my son's born and I uh, via C-section and I never quite recovered from that surgery and was having pain and fatigue and exhaustion and trying to figure out what was going on health wise. And I ended up being diagnosed with an autoimmune disease that was triggered by stress. And at the same time, I was working in an in independent school, uh, or before my son was born, I was working in uh, both an independent school and a high-risk school, high-risk need school in Denver. And I was becoming increasingly aware of this stress level in kids. And, uh, and it didn't matter what socioeconomic bracket they came from. They, it was incredibly stressed anxious, overwhelmed group of students that was impacting them in all kinds of ways. So I have these two things going on, these kids that are super stressed, myself, I've just been diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, likely triggered by stress. And my response was, okay, let's pack up the family. We're going to move out of the busyness of Denver. We're going to move to this small town of Steamboat Springs, Colorado. And I will create this perfect bubble around my family and we will spend our lives frolicking in the fields and, you know, drinking cocktails after we ski. And 
we did that. Sounds good. Yeah, sounds pretty great, right? <laughs> and we did that. We moved to Steamboat Springs, and it was like that for a few weeks. <laughs> and then the realities of, you know, it doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter how much money you have, what job you have, who you're married to, what school your kids go to. These stressors creep into our lives in all kinds of ways. And we can't create that perfect life from the outside, which was what I was trying to do. And we had to build this resilience from the inside. And so I had done all this research and I was becoming very aware of the impact of mindfulness on the way our brains function. I was working as a consultant in some schools up here in Steamboat, and I started experimenting with some of these mindfulness practices in the schools where I was working. And it just blew up. Um, you know, I call myself an entrepreneur by accident, and that's truly what it was. I started working with one school, and within a month, I was teaching 70 classes all over northwestern Colorado using this mindfulness curriculum that I created. And we did some research on the program. We then started training teachers so that teachers could do the practices with the kids in the classroom, had great benefits for the teachers as they practiced with the kids. And that program just blew up nationwide and um, internationally, actually. I then um, you know, was very aware of this, what I would call a generation of stressed out kids was being raised by very stressed parents. So I wrote the book Mindful Parenting, which is kind of about that system of managing stress, both for kids and their parents. And I was going on a book tour uh, around talking about that book. And, and after all of my talks, which were mostly in schools and community centers, people would come up to me and they would say, hey, can you come speak to my law firm? We really need you in our accounting firm. Can you come to our medical clinic? And it was so clear that this culture of this epidemic of stress was trickling into every industry, every age bracket. Um, it would just, it was pervasive. And these tools that I developed seemed to work across all, all ages, all cultures. Uh, it, and so it just kind of spiraled. Uh, so then I started working with corporations and giving talks in Coca-Cola and for Spanx and for Carter's and Crocs and all of these big companies helping them build resilience to stress. I then had a setback, which was, I, I think I became so busy and had so much going on that I, I let my own mindfulness practice fall to the bottom of my list once again. And so I kind of had to hit, really examine what was going on. Um, how can I be teaching these people how to practice mindfulness when I wasn't really doing it myself? And what I came up with was really what's one of the core foundations of my work now is how we integrate in these practices into what we're already doing. So what are the simple things that we can do in our busy lives that can make a huge impact? And that has been steering my work for quite a while. Just the this notion that small changes can make a big difference, um, that it's all based in neuroscience for me everything comes back to how our brains function and how these practices impact our brains and then the use of mindfulness practices to create these changes so that has really been 
you know, kind of how the the progression of my work. I, you know, most recently have become super passionate about my work with the, a company called Solvasa Beauty. And I love it because I'm very passionate about supporting women, uh, working women, working moms. And what we're doing at Solvasa is creating ways to integrate mindfulness into something women do every day, which is typically some kind of a skincare routine. Um, you know, often we let that go to the bottom of our list too, but this is a way to kind of create that routine for ourselves, but instead of uh, being distracted and lost in thought while we're doing it, using an opportunity to really get present to receive those benefits of a, a mindfulness practice. Yeah. So that's kind of my journey. It's ever changing. It's always evolving. It's super fun and exciting. And uh, I never know where it's going to take me next. <laughs> that's the art of living, right? It's just like being flexible and 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 following your following your intuition. I I, I totally make the connection between between skincare and self-care and mindfulness like mindfulness is a thing you can and should do to take care of yourself and especially for people who listen to this podcast myself included you know my my friends and fellow entrepreneurs is we we this is a i'm also a life coach and so saying things like you can't pour from an empty cup is, is cliche to me but it's true like you have to take care of yourself if you're going to be there for others and self-care is always the first thing to go like just like your story i'm gonna be i'm gonna be there i'm gonna make an impact i'm gonna make a difference i'm gonna i'm gonna be of value and service to people and in the meantime i'm just gonna drain myself dry so i'm just a puddle when I get home every night, right? Like, so oh, I, yeah. I, I totally get, I totally get the, the, the correlation between like, just like caring for yourself, just even for a little bit every day. I want to go back though. You said the, you said a buzzword for me, which is tools. Um, you know, little things that you can do every day to incorporate into your life. Can you share with us just a couple of those tools that you're referencing and how we can use them in our everyday life? Sure. Uh, you know, for, so for me, a core tool is my mindfulness practice, a um, what I would call a formal mindfulness practice, which is every day bringing awareness to my breathing for about three to five minutes. It's not terribly long. And when I wake up, the first thing that I think about is my coffee. <sighs> so I go downstairs, I set my coffee to brew and instead of diving right into my inbox or, you know, looking at my phone or unloading the dishwasher, I take three to five minutes and I pay attention to my breathing while my coffee brews. For me, that sets the tone for my day. I'm a big believer that how you start your day sets the tone for your day. And this gets into, um, you know, something we can talk about, which is the brain functioning and stimulating our prefrontal cortex and what that does for optimal performance throughout the day. But that, that would be a key example for me. Another example is a practice that I call P as in Paul, B as in boy, R as in Roger. PBR, not the beer. And <laughs> it stands for pause, breathe, and respond with intention. 
And so as we practice mindfulness, as we start a meditation practice, one of the things that we developed is an increase in our awareness and often an awareness of when we are triggered. So with that kind of awareness, I can notice that if I open my email and something really triggers me, uh, or if my 16-year-old comes down the stairs and says something or does something that really triggers me, and I'm able to pause and take a deep breath. Um, when we're stressed, we only breathe in the top quarter of our lungs. So by just taking one or two deep breaths, we actually bring our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems back into balance. This signals our prefrontal cortex to come back online, which is great for problem solving, decision making, impulse control. Um, so I take those breaths, uh, allow me to then respond with intention. So I can respond in a way that can lead to the most positive outcome based on the situation rather than just reacting in a way that could send me down a downward spiral or make everything worse. Hmm. So PBR dozens of times a day, all day long. <laughs> yeah. So that's a couple. I have I have many I could take you through the day that I use, but those are a couple of the big ones I would say. I'd love to hear a little bit more about about the about the brain chemistry um, response. What what's going on um, besides uh, besides our parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems coming into balance? What else is going on neurochemically when we are actively influencing our resilience? Like when we are are being aware using these tools like yeah. does our serotonin get does our serotonin go up and oxytocin go up does our does our dopamine go down adrenaline norepinephrine like can you walk us through because I, I that that's because that's that's a that's a very fine moment right when you have start to freak out yeah and then you employ one of these tools um, even just taking a couple of big deep breaths which is so I mean, it's fundamental and universal, and yet so few of us actually have that practice. But what what what's what's going on in the brain when we are are doing PBR? Like, what what's happening? Yeah. yeah, let's talk about it. So, I think whether I'm explaining kind of the stress response in the brain to a five year old or a ninety five year old, <laughs> there's two main <clears throat> structures in the brain that are involved. The first is our prefrontal cortex, which I mentioned. So this is the front part of our brain from an evolutionary perspective. It's the newest part of our brain kind of be behind your forehead. And this part of our brain is responsible for attention, for impulse control, for problem solving, decision making, forward thinking. It's the rational part of our brain. It allows us to think clearly and to work productively. Super important. Then we have the amygdala in the back of our brain, which is part of our limbic system. That is your responsible for your fight, <clears throat> excuse me, that's responsible for your fight, flight, or freeze response. So it's our survival mechanisms. And it's triggered when we encounter something that feels threatening, that feels unfamiliar. So the way our stress response was designed was that if you ran into a saber-toothed tiger, then this survival me mechanism would be triggered, your heart would race, your blood pressure would increase, your muscles would become tight, and you would either be able to fight 
um, freeze or flee the situation. And it had a very useful purpose for keeping us alive. The issue is that now we have things triggering this stress response all the time throughout our day, throughout our nights. And it's not because of life-threatening situations. It's things like, you know, waking up to the alarm on my smartphone and seeing the day headlines as a notification or a text message that's come in that might trigger me or I open my inbox and something I get an email from a coworker or my son forgets his lunch on the way to school or there's traffic or the dog throws up on the floor and all of these things trigger that amygdala. Now, when our, that stress response is triggered, our prefrontal cortex shuts down. Hmm. So essentially, we make all of our decisions from this reactive, irritable, overwhelmed, impulsive part of our brain instead of using our prefrontal cortex to help us solve problems. Now, what mindfulness does is it strengthens the neural pathways in our prefrontal cortex. So it's just like you doing bicep curls for your arms as you practice mindfulness, both formally and informally, you strengthen the muscle of the prefrontal cortex. So this allows you to notice when you've been triggered and then access, use mm -hmm. one of these tools to access that part of our brain to respond appropriately. So I, I th another way to think about it is um, it, think if you think about a pot of water that's room temperature sitting on the stove, that would in, in that case, that would mean your prefrontal cortex is working well, you feel calm, you feel at ease, you can engage effectively with the people around you. But then you get that text and the heat turns up a little bit. And then you get that that annoying email and the heat turns up a little more and then you run out, you know, you don't have enough gas and the heat turns up and the traffic and the heat turns up and your kids are fighting and the heat turns up. And before you know it, you are operating on simmer and you haven't even arrived at work yet. And when we're on simmer, we're 100 percent in that amygdala, that alarm part of our brain. And one more thing and we boil over. Hmm. right? The top comes off. And a lot of times we don't even notice we're on simmer. Um, our kids don't notice that they're on simmer. But when you're on simmer, you can't uh, work productively. You can't solve problems effectively. If you're a child, you can't learn effectively because all of those skills require your prefrontal cortex. So what I try to do with these tools is use them as like little ice cubes, you're still going to get a little heat in your in in the pot, right? But you have a little ice cube to drop in there to bring it back into balance to keep your prefrontal cortex driving your behavior, driving um, how you work, driving how you perform, driving how you interact with your kids and the people around you. Mm. And it's incredibly profound when you get to a point where you know how to access that part of your brain when you need to. And it's, you know, it's unbelievable for what it's done for me, for my productivity, for my ability to balance 18 different projects and still take care of myself, take care of my kids and 
and be as happy a human being as I can be. Yeah, I like that metaphor a lot. I like the idea of dropping ice cubes into a simmering pot and having those tools, having those moments. That's really great. Um, yeah, I think I think a key takeaway for me is that most of us don't know that that's what we're doing. You know, mm-hmm. most of us really have no idea. And we all work with people that we think it's them. Like, oh, that person's freaking out all the time. That person, you know, can't get anything done because they're stressed out and distracted. But it's really, it's most of us. It's most of us. We don't, we don't have these tools or we don't use these tools. And so we're just, we're, we're operating through our lives all day, every day into the evening time we're staying up late watching netflix we're looking at our phone in bed and we're just like like constantly redlining and we don't even know it and yeah i and a lot of people don't realize it is those things that you mentioned it's social media is turning up the heat on your amygdala you know when you get too lost in that it's you, you know just responding to every text on your phone is a, a little trigger that mm. there's so many things in our environment that are constantly triggering that that if we're not intentional about you know both creating that internal resilience but also creating an environment where our brain can function effectively if we're not intentional about that then all of these wonderful devices and things we have to make our lives easier can take control and ultimately make our lives more difficult. Yeah, well in my world too in the in the world of biohacking and optimal performance, you know, mm-hmm. we we there's this there's this sort of over-quantification that people do with bio with biomarking uh, biomarkers, you know, tracking heart rate variability, you know, you know, everybody's taken part in a in a steps competition where you to you where you wear a Fitbit and do it or or an iWatch and do a pedometer and so even though the intention is to do something healthy for yourself you're obsessing over it and thinking about it all day long it's like oh I didn't get enough sleep dang it oh I didn't get the REM that I wanted on my sleep tracker oh I didn't get my steps in and it's like the 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 intention is there but but the but the point you're missing right like you right, you're do, going right back to that stress response. Yeah, not doing anything about it. Well, what what's the result? I mean, I mean, again, for you and me, it's it's fairly obvious. But the the result of a week, a month, a year, ten years of that like low simmer where we're not mm-hmm. actually recovering, it leads yeah. to it leads to what? It that's a great question. So when you're on, and this is what happened to me exactly is basically we can deal with that that chronic stress for a little while before the negative impacts set in but um what you'll notice ways to know that you are on that simmer level is you have difficulty paying attention you feel scattered and overwhelmed you may not sleep well at night you may have more of a temper than you normally have. So these are all indications that you could be on simmer. And then when we stay at that level for t- too long, we tend to do turn to things like self-medicating or zoning out into mind-numbing activities like the binge-watching of the Netflix or the internet, um, anything to kind of numb ourselves. And then it leads to chronic health issues. Um, So again, you know, like that little bit of stress is good to get us going, to get us into the zone. But when we are chronically stressed, 
uh, without doing anything about it, without having tools um, to either reframe that stress or to bring our system back down, then that's when we get into, you know, the huge release of cortisol, epinephrine, norepinephrine, which has that negative impact both on our health and our productivity. You let another tool slip, and I have to, to highlight it. Let's talk about reframing. Um, in, in, in my world, again, um, as, as a coach, as a father, as a leader, an entrepreneur, like this is everything. <laughs> like, yeah. Reframing is everything because we have the choice uh, to feel however we want to feel in any given moment in the day. And reframing for me is one of the, one of the key tools that I teach people to be in control of their emotional states. And so please tell me how, how you think of reframing and, and how, how people can do it. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of ways to do it. For me, reframing is really useful in taking a stressor and not letting it go crazy with your amygdala. (laughs) So as an example, um, you know, my daughter has, and I don't, if you have kids, there's this test called the pacer test, which is a PE test where they basically, they have to run back and forth laps in the gym and they have to see how many they can get. And we would call it pacer panic in our house because about a month before the pacer test, her anxiety would just build and build. She would try to get sick to get out of it. She, you know, didn't want anything to do with it. And she always did well in it. But it was that fear of not doing well, of, of, you know, being exposed that that was so difficult. And so what we really tried to do, uh, you know, one thing that we talked about is that nervousness, all of that you feel like those butterflies in your belly, that tightness in your chest, that's your body getting ready. That's your body getting ready to perform. And if you can think of like anxiety or nervousness as excitement, they both do the same thing from a physical standpoint. But when we view it as excitement, then our brain processes it differently. We're able to use our prefrontal cortex to process it instead of that fight, flight or freeze, which is coming from a place of fear and anxiety. And so and you may not believe it. You might, you know, be getting ready to give a speech, you know, before my TED talk. And I was saying, I'm excited. I'm excited. <laughs> I'm excited. Meanwhile, I'm like looking for every exit in the building. How can I get out of this? Um, but telling yourself that you're excited actually does work. And there's studies that show you that it that it works. And then another thing I try to really focus on is the growth that occurs through things that are difficult. And whatever it is, whatever it is that's hard, whatever mistake you made, um, whatever you're worried about, if you can think about how how can I grow from this opportunity, um, that is huge. Because we all think of growth as positive. Learning something is a positive experience. And so if instead of viewing it as a as a failure or something, you know, often I'll say, okay, what's the worst case scenario? Let's say you don't make the basketball team or let's say you don't get the promotion or the, you know, uh, for the interview that you're preparing for. How can you grow from that? 
And when you can focus on that, not only will you perform better, but you're going to relieve that anxiety and all of that stuff that's triggering, triggering the part of your brain that's going to keep you from performing your best. Oh, that's wonderful. I like that a lot. Uh, how can I, how can I grow? How can I grow? What's the lesson? What's the takeaway? Yeah. 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 That makes tons of sense to me. I didn't realize that there were studies around I'm excited versus I'm freaking out. Right. Yeah. And I, uh, I don't have the research to quote right here. I believe that came from, I want to say Kelly McGonigal's work in the upside of stress. Mm. Um, she has some really wonderful takeaways about viewing stress differently, as well as a lot of the research behind that. Uh, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, that is. Um, I wanted to talk about the, 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 the sort of the generational um, impact of this, right? Like mm-hmm. Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, I don't know who, I don't even know which, which generation my six and three year olds will be. Um, right. But, but one thing that, that sort of struck me um, is that, and maybe this is uh, tangential and, 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 and irrelevant, but the one thing that I think about is there is, seems to be sort of a lack of purpose uh, in, in the way that – so I'm like the, on, the, on the higher end of millennials. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's Gen X and Gen Y before, uh, before me and, and the, way that I, the way that I sort of conceive of this is like we sort of lack a, lack a, a, a community goal, like a, a civilizational purpose. Like we're, we're, not, we're not really striving for anything really specific. Like, you know, the Industrial Revolution was, a, was like a global um, phenomenon that, that everybody just had to be a part of. And, and, and the Internet is, is, is really sort of a, is sort of a tool, but it, it doesn't really give us purpose. I think it, mm-hmm. when it first came out, we thought it did, but what it does is just gives us something to do, something to learn. So obviously people, um, Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, millennials have this great knowledge, but there's no like, there's no action to be taken. Hmm. Um, there's no collective, um, there's no like collective intention going on. I don't know. It just sort of, it just sort of struck me, um, you know, it, that if we can find individual purpose, if we can find meaning into our, in ourselves and our daily lives, if we can be the best people that we can be individually, then that will sort of bleed out and grow. Um, you know, yeah, that, 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 that sort of like that stress from just, Oh, I've just got to, I've just got to keep running on this, on, on this wheel and I got to make things happen and I got to get insurance and I got to, I got to pay my bills and I, you know, um, but uh, but I think the sort of like greater meaning is this thing that's lacking. I don't know. Do you have any Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's really interesting because in my work, I've done um, a fair amount of work uh, with mindful leadership and working with corporate leadership teams. And one of the things that I talk to them about is the difference between managing or leading. Uh, a baby boomer or a Gen Xer versus a millennial. And I think one of the key differences is Gen X and the baby boomers were driven by stuff. 
you know, give me that reward, give me the bonus, give me the trip uh, if I meet my sales quota. And I and millennials are much more interested from my experience with the internal internal motivation. So give me meaning. I want to have meaning in what I do. And if as a leader, if I can convey what the meaning of your work is, then then I have your loyalty. Then you're coming to work with something that feels cause driven mm. and it goes much deeper and is much more motivating for the long term than uh, the $100 Visa gift card <laughs> that I might get at the end of the month if I do X, Y, and Z. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about millennials that's often overlooked yeah. is that there is, that is what they're, they also want the connection. So I talk to leaders a lot about you know, how, how are you connecting to people? Are you walking, do you walk into your leadership corner suite and stay in there all day and no one's allowed to come in and speak to you? Or are you walking around the floor and learning people's names and their birthdays and if they have kids and connecting with them on that personal level is much more meaningful than, uh, than just kind of this perceived notion of I'm the leader you know, flexing my leadership muscles. And I think that's a shift for people. But I, I do think that's one of the amazing things about millennials and something that, um, you know, you might not know exactly what the cause or what the meaning is yet. And I even I, you know, I think I'm here, I'm almost 50. And I'm just now starting to wrap my brain around what my meaning is and what my cause is. Uh, but I think it's going to come and it's going to come big <laughs> because of the millennial, you know, um, interest in true meaning and cause and yeah. connection. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. I mean, the, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of the Simon Sinek presentation about why, like know your why. Yeah. Like, what's your why? Like, you know, um, Apple makes Apple makes uh, tech products, but their their why is not tech products. Their why is to is to connect the world. Like that is much more effective in inspiring people. It's much more effective. It's the reason why we have to buy the new iPhone is because we believe in the why of interconnectedness of 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 innovation. Not not just stuff, but like yeah. Oh, that's really yeah, cool. Yeah, hundred percent. I just. I came out with a, a planner at the end of this year. It's called the Master Your Life Planner One Season at a Time. And it kind of walks people through this goal setting process from a macro level of, you know, looking at what's your one word focus for the year to what are your seasonal goals? What are your monthly goals? What are the daily habits and rituals that are going to create the proper brain state to get you there? Mm. And as we look at those monthly goals, one of the huge things that we focus on is the why. It's not the outcome. It's not the, oh, I want to lose five pounds, but it's why. How will you feel? What When you visualize your life in that body, whatever that body might be, or what, you know, having achieved this goal, what does that look like? How do, what does it feel like? How does it impact your life? And the why is what motivates us. We're much more likely to attain those goals, to stick with our resolutions, to whatever it is, when we're driven by the why rather than the the outcome or the or the feature. 
features, so right. to speak. Totally. Yeah, I think that's that. That's it's such a key thing. I I, I think that that is that is the that is the future of of the modern world is to understand the why. What can we get on the same page? Can we can we have meaning? Can we have purpose individually? Um, and it's it's tough to keep that in it's tough to keep that in perspective because you know yeah I I want to lose I want to lose ten pounds but. But why? Why is that important to me? Is it because yeah. I want to look better naked? Yeah. Is it because I want to not have sore knees? Yeah, that's why. Well, why don't I want to have sore knees? Because it slows yeah. me down. Because it, it, you know, it's painful. Yeah. You can kind of, you can, you can really build, build greater awareness of the self, um, and in communities, it sounds like the work that you do, um, just by by focusing on that. Um, let's talk about gratitude. Um, yeah. Gratitude is 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 huge and it is so corny (laughs) it is so it is so corny and much of personal development is corny most of bettering yourself is corny namby pamby pollyanna kumbaya stuff but yep (laughs) but it's it's that way for a reason because it feels good because it, it improves your outcomes um Tell me about how you does does gratitude come into the way that you think about mindfulness and how you apply mindfulness in your practice. Like what what's what's the power of gratitude for you? It's incredibly powerful. Uh, you know, top top of my list, and it comes into play for me in a in a variety of ways. The first thing, as corny and weird as it feels to practice gratitude, to say things you're grateful for, you you know, you get the joke of the Thanksgiving table, the one time people go around yeah. the table and talk about it and everybody feels so uncomfortable. But when we practice gratitude regularly, we strengthen our left prefrontal cortex. So we're strengthening the neural pathways in the part of our brain responsible for positive emotions. Mm. So number one, 25% happier. As soon as you start a formal gratitude practice, it can increase your happiness by up to 25%. Kids who formally practice gratitude get along better with their siblings. They perform better academically. They're more socially integrated. They're less likely to be anxious. It is the simplest practice with the most profound benefits. So a couple of ways that I like to integrate like to integrate gratitude into my day. Um, one, I, I either exercise, I do some kind of exercise right now. I'm really big into yoga. Um, so at the end of my yoga practice, you know, you go into Shavasana, right? Where you have those few blissful minutes where you're just laying on the mat. And I tend to go into my to-do list. Okay. What's next? Hmm. And recently I've shifted that to, thinking about what are trying to identify three to five things that I'm grateful for that occurred in the last 24 hours. Hmm. So instead of doing the usual, I'm grateful for my kids. I'm grateful for my health, for my home that can become habitual in the brain. So it then becomes processed in our basal ganglia. Whereas if I'm pinpointing what happened in the last 24 hours that I'm grateful for, or I'm stimulating that left prefrontal cortex. Mm. So, you know, the other day I came home and uh, my son, Charlie, who's 14, gave me a big hug. 
that I was really grateful for. Um, my nephew offered to cook dinner that I was really grateful for. So really trying to pinpoint that. And it's a time where I'm laying on that mat anyway. You can think of this as your cool down from your run, as your stretch for whatever kind of workout you do. That's a, that's a good one. Another one is uh, at the end of the day, I practice three good things. So three good things is just acknowledging three good experiences you had today. And when we do this, um, and I like to either write them down or share them with somebody. And I'll tell you about sharing about sharing them in a second. But research behind this practice, if you do this for two weeks, you um, have increased happiness, decreased depression and anxiety, improved work-life balance, improved sleep-life quality. And just for doing this for two weeks, it takes two minutes a night. It's unbelievable. And when they follow people for six months after they did that two-week practice, they find that this practice trends better than Prozac for easing depression and boosting happiness. Whoa. Amazing. So some of the ways I like to do that, that you know, I've, I've done everything from saying, hey, Sean, think of two buddies from your early 20s or from college or from high school that you'd like to reconnect with. Send them a text and say, we're going to do this practice for two weeks. We're going to text each other three good things from our day. And you get this window into their life mm. that is a way to reconnect that is amazing Plus, you get the benefits of the practice, and you get the reminder uh, when they text you or you text them, they're reminded to respond to that text. I've also done it in work teams, um, putting people in groups that changes the culture of a workplace in a way that, that I get to know you in a much different way than just the guy that does X, Y, and Z. I now know you have kids, and you have a dog that you really love, and you like to go for walks in the evening. and. So it's inc it's an amazing practice and so easy, so simple. I love that. Oh, um, how do people? Um, what are the excuses that people come up with why they don't want to do that? You know, I think when I talk about three good things, and maybe it's just taking the word gratitude out of it. Yeah, right. I've never had somebody say they don't want to do it. Ah, I've been doing this for a long time, but I've never had someone say no way. Certainly, I've had people who start it and forget about it. Um, for whatever reason, and don't stick with it for two weeks. But I've also had people that um, one of the first schools that I trained, and this was probably eight to 10 years ago, we did this in a faculty training. And women, three of these faculty members formed a group, and they still do this practice. 10 years later, they work in all different buildings. And it has it's been unbelievably impactful for them. And wow. I have a lot of people that it's been a life-changing practice for. Uh, I hear more, more than anything, um, much more than I can't do that or that's too much or I feel like a, a, you're soaking me in patchouli oil or, <laughs> you know, it's very mainstream. It's very palatable. It's doable. Wow. Uh, and I do it with my family too. You know, my kids are older, they have phones and we'll go through a period where we'll do it as a group of four and text each other from one bedroom to the next, what our three good things are. And it's a great reset at any point. That is so great. I really like that. I mean, think of, 
that is the best part. I mean, that is the that's the upside of having friends is to be able to celebrate the good stuff, right? Like to be to be yeah. there for someone when they're struggling is is that I mean, that's a true friend when they need you. Like I need you right now. I need to talk. I need some help. I need some perspective. I just need to be heard. I need to be seen. Like that for sure. That is that is the hallmark of a meaningful relationship. But the good stuff, the best stuff is to celebrate wins and, you know, to stay in contact with someone that you haven't really talked to in a while and be able to hear all the great things or just three good things that happened to them that day. Man, that's phenomenal. I really, and simple really like things. that. And, and I would argue that even at times when people are struggling, that's when this is the most impactful. Because even if you're dealing with, I'm going to lose my job or I'm financially struggling or I'm taking care of my sick parents. There are still good things that happen every day. Right. Your dog's excited to see you. The, you know, the leaves are changing. There's beautiful snowflakes in the air, you know, whatever. There's always, you can always find three good things, but our brain's tendency is to, is to focus on the negative, right? right. We're much more sensitive to the negative and the positive. So it's bringing intention to finding those good things, and it's incredibly powerful. Oh, I love that! I love that so much. Um, we're gonna take this. We're gonna I, this. This has been such a great conversation. We're, we're gonna take it home in a minute with a fill in the blank question. But before we do that, can you tell us uh, where people can find you, see your work, um, get in touch if they'd like? Absolutely. So you can find me at kristenrace.com. Uh, there's all kinds of information about uh, speaking engagements, my books, my planner, uh, coaching communities, all kinds of great stuff there. You can follow me on Instagram at Dr. Kristen Race. I post a lot of these little tools and tidbits and tips uh, for people in their everyday lives. So that's a great place to catch up with me. And then you can also follow me at silvasabeauty.com and find out all the great things that we're doing there uh, and how to integrate a little mindfulness into your skincare routine. Awesome. So cool. Okay. So I like to ask every single guest the same fill in the blank question. Um, it's purpose, purposefully going to catch you off guard. Um, and this can be regarding anything. This is a piece of advice that uh, that doesn't necessarily have to be uh, directly uh, in accordance with mindfulness. But if you would, please fill in the blank and elaborate as much as you'd like. Everyone would benefit from knowing. Everyone would benefit from knowing. You're totally going to bring out the brain geek in me. Uh, but I really, truly believe that everyone benefits from knowing how stress impacts their brains. And the reason is because we all have stress in our lives. And stress impacts our moods, our relationships, our productivity, our performance, our everything. And when you understand how stress impacts your brain, and then you have a few tools to remedy that, it's incredibly empowering. No longer do you feel like you are just being driven by this this crazy brain, um, you know, and wandering thoughts and monkey mind and everything else. But you you have a clear idea of what's going on in there and and how I can adjust it or tweak it so that I can proceed through my day in the best way possible. Hmm. 
And you can explain that to a four-year-old. I have in mindful parenting, I talk about how to explain the stress response in the brain to kids, which is a huge aha moment because it gives them so much control over their emotions and, and kind of how to manage them. And I talk about this to CEOs. <laughs> so it's a, for me, it's a huge one. And That's, probably my biggest aha moment was really understanding it. That's so great. Thank you so much for sharing that. Dr. Kristen Race, thank you for appearing today on the Optimal Performance Podcast. Sean, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.